with the limited biblical narrative in Joshua 11. I've been trying to find a fairly close equivalent in military history to paint a better picture. It's not a perfect narrative, but there are some pretty good similarities in the military style in the campaigns. And for this reason, I want to take the listeners to 1805 Europe and the military genius of Napoleon Bonaparte. Obviously, we are not comparing the character of Joshua with Napoleon or even discussing their faith, but we will be discussing their military talents, gifts, and parallels between their military campaigns, especially rapid maneuver against multiple nations and armies, surprise assaults, the use of terrain in battle, and military strategy. Spring, 1805, Europe. For the last year, Europe has enjoyed peace. Napoleon is now the crowned emperor of France, and under his control is France and large portions of northern Italy. His country has won many battles with Austria, but has lost many battles with England and Egypt and at sea. All the while, Napoleon has consolidated his power and has been crowned the emperor of France. And overnight, the peace was broken when England supported Napoleon's enemies with massive financial backing to re-rage war against him. In 1805, Austria, Russia, and England formed the Third Coalition to overthrow Napoleon. Prussia would later join the conflict against Napoleon as well, but this would be too late. Four nations against one. A conglomerate of nations rallied to fight Imperial France. Napoleon had an army in Boulogne on the English Channel, and in quick order, very decisively, he left a tiny force and doing the equivalent of 20th century radio silence, marched his army across France to the Rhine in under a month. He crossed the Rhine, unknown to his enemies, and in a swift surprise movement characteristic of his military style, he caught his enemies unaware. His army emerged from their silence and crossed the Rhine and totally surprised General Mack in Ulm near modern-day Wittenberg, Germany. General Mack, with over 75,000 troops, was awaiting a Russian army to invade France. Due to the surprise attack, General Mack was surrounded and cut off from the rest of his country and the Russian army. The result, 50,000 prisoners and substantial military equipment were surrendered at Ulm near Wittenberg, Germany, to Napoleon. In the first campaign of the war, General Mack was court-martialed and Napoleon had taken 50,000 troops from his enemies that would have been used against him later. Napoleon's swift movement and rapid deployment would vex his enemies time and time again. Ignoring normal conventions of war that required massive supply wagons, Napoleon would embark on a military campaign with limited supplies, sacrificing supply for a need for speed. As they lived off the land and surprised his enemies on their flanks or in their rear. Next, Napoleon marched into Vienna, and eventually the French were facing what remained of the Austrian armies and the entire Russian army on the field of Austerlitz in modern-day Czech Republic. At Austerlitz, Napoleon convinced his enemies he had made a mistake to confront them and suggested in negotiations that he had bitten off more than he could chew. So Napoleon faked a retreat and hid his main force behind rolling hills and hidden by the morning fog. The Allies, sensing a weakness in the French, took the previous French position in the center on the high ground called the Pretzen Heights and advanced their left a third of their army to cut off the French from escaping. And on December 2, 1805, Napoleon made his move when Marshal Soult 
emerged from behind the rolling hills in a fog that lifted to reveal a French force attacking the Pretzen Heights. Within hours, the Heights was in French hands, and Napoleon ordered his forces to turn right and cut off the overreaching Russians on his right. Defeated in their center and on their left, surrounded, the Allied force on their left was forced to surrender or face death or attempt to flee across a frozen lake. From here, the accounts are mixed, but in a climax, and one of the accounts has Napoleon himself ordering his artillery to break the ice, drowning anywhere from one to 20,000 Russians in the frozen lake. And when it was all over, in only two months, due to his brilliant strategy and swift mobility, Napoleon defeated a superior force and ended a war waged against him in only two months. At Ulm, 50,000 soldiers surrendered to him. At Austerlitz, the Allied casualties were 27,000 out of 73,000 men. Some reports only have 1,400 French losing their lives. It is no wonder Tsar Alexander said this of Napoleon after the conflict. We are babies in the hands of a giant. Napoleon would have, would have peace with Austria and Russia and later Prussia, but England will remain at war with Napoleon. He would go on to win many other battles, but he would lose even more catastrophic battles. But it was his military brilliance at Austerlitz that placed it as one of the greatest military battles in all of history. To round out this account of Napoleon, this is a quote from author R.G. Grant. Napoleon's approach to strategy, disregarding the occupation of territory or fortresses, his goal was by rapid maneuver to bring the enemy's force to battle at a disadvantage and destroy them. His army corps marched separately, making fast progress, living off the land, and joining up to fight. Napoleon's specialties included maneuvering around the enemy's flank to take up a position to his rear, forcing him to give battle. Or he might adopt a central position from which to strike at different enemy armies, delivering a series of punches to the victim one by one. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 35, Joshua's Northern Campaign. Now we take the listeners to 1397 B.C., the location, the Sea of Galilee. Four primary kings have assembled to fight one nation, the Israelites, and their leader, Joshua. The people that rallied to his cause were described as more numerous than the sands on the shore. Josephus counted them as 300,000 troops with 10,000 cavalry and 20,000 chariots. Here are the multiple kings that bring their armed forces to bear to begin a march south to destroy Joshua. Joshua 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Aksaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, and in the Arabah south of Kinnereth, and in the western hills in the Naboth door, or on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah, they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. 
All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Maram to fight against Israel. Jabin, king of Hazor, was the leader of these nations. Clearly the terror of the Israelites had spread itself north. They most likely had seen the wonder of the Jordan River and experienced the 48-hour day, and one by one the reports were coming in of the destruction of southern Canaan, beginning with Og and Sion. Kingdom after kingdom, and their map of Canaan was changing rapidly. The shock was received of the loss of all five Amorite kings in one day. No doubt the eyewitness accounts were coming through as well as no mercy in God's design to give the Israelites the entire land. And some may have even passed on the prophecy of Abraham and the coming judgment on the Canaanites. Jabin was not going to go out without a fight. He would assemble all of the remaining kings and fight Joshua and enlist the help from others, including the powerful Hittites and their chariots and horsemen. Here are the kings again. Jabin, king of Hazor, which was north of the Sea of Galilee, Jobab, and king of Madon, which is just west of the Sea of Galilee, and the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, who were most likely east of Mount Carmel. In addition, the, there was other kings, and their assembly of forces must have been incredible. Surrounded by many nations and superior military equipment, Joshua was facing a force possibly more numerous than the southern campaign. Similar to Napoleon over 3,000 years later, Joshua does what he does best. He deploys and marches his forces with absurd organization and speed. Joshua heads north to confront this confederation of nations, four primary kings and other lesser kingdoms and their armies and allies. Moving in typical Joshua fashion, the Israelites arrive in a position for a surprise attack. For simplicity, let's give some general locations. Now there's at least three opinions on the location of the waters of Maram. One is the Sea of Galilee, and another is, is Lake Hule, north of the Sea of Galilee, and another would be a mountain lake in the hills west of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to take the Sea of Galilee approach for the podcast. Let's say the kings assembled in the location of Capernaum at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, which was Jesus' base in his day. Adding some detail for context, let's say Joshua arrives at the southern portion of the lake at nightfall. Joshua knows that what the next day holds. He goes away privately and prays, and the Lord does what he does with Joshua. He meets him and tells him this in Joshua 11.6. Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Joshua emerges from his time alone with the Lord and announces God's words to the people. This time Joshua received no strategy, just a promise. Think about this. Sometimes it's better to receive just a promise. Let's see why. At this point in Joshua's life, it's like he doesn't need as much direction or commands from God. Why? He's proven his obedience to God. His thoughts were holy. He was entering that zone in his life. It's almost as if the strategy was given to him in his thought life. He had the mind of Christ, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2. He knew what he knew. He knew what God wanted him to do, just like in the valley of Ajalon. Here's the next account, Joshua eleven seven. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. 
We have no supernatural encounters here, just a sudden assault. We don't know for sure, but it can be read into that Joshua didn't pitch camp for the night, and under the cover of darkness, he snuck up on the opposing armies who thought Joshua was still at Gilgal, 100 plus miles to the south. Think about General Mack. He's expecting the rest of his armies to show up and the Russians to show up so he can march into France and destroy Napoleon. Instead, out of nowhere, he is surrounded and forced to surrender everything. Most likely at dawn, Joshua violently smashed into the unsuspecting kings of northern Canaan, and in this war of annihilation, it was just that. The key here is that it was a surprise attack. It's one of those suddenlies in the Bible. Joshua suddenly attacked the kings. It's really cool if you look up all the suddenlies in the Bible. Every time a suddenly occurs, there is a spiritual breakthrough, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. We don't know for sure how Joshua snuck up on such a force, as large as it was, but he did. The surprise was so great, it negated their superiority in horses and chariots. The cavalry and chariots were rendered useless, massed against the fleeing men and horses. 20,000 chariots were destroyed that day, and 10,000 horses were hamstrung. According to Deuteronomy 17, God told the Israelites to not accumulate horses, but to trust in God alone. Joshua fulfilled this request. We will see later future kings like Solomon accumulating horses and building chariots against this command. The sheer quantity of chariots to me in this battle is quite staggering. These were the tanks of their day. Listed among the nations and people groups was the Hittites. Could it be this huge number of chariots were from one of the large battle groups from the Hittite Empire in Turkey? Could this be one of those reasons for the disappearance of the Hittites from history? Joshua didn't invade the main Hittite territory, but he could have destroyed a large portion of their military equipment. Archaeology has revealed ruins at Hazor, and like most archaeology, dates are argued. But the scarred burning is undisputed. Clearly, these are the marks from Joshua's great burning of the city. Jabin was taken out, and all the kings with them who participated in this campaign. By the evening of the next day, the remaining nations were completely defeated or on the run. Joshua pursued them to their cities, especially Hazor, the leader of these nations, and burned it to the ground, just how God had promised. This campaign conquered northern Canaan for Joshua and opened up the rest of the country to Israelite colonization and the division of the land to the tribes. The promise of Abraham was a reality. Here's the rest of the account. Joshua 11:15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountains of Israel and their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, to Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. To conclude this episode, a message to kings. 
I'd like to say it was at the waters of Merom that Joshua suddenly came upon these kings. It was at Gibeah that Joshua suddenly came upon the Amorites. It was suddenly that Jeremiah prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 15.8 and Babylon in 51.8. But it was Malachi 31 that declares Jesus would suddenly appear in his temple. And greatest of all, it was suddenly in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit came like tongues of fire and birthed the church to change the world. Could this be said of us and of this generation, that all those who came before us, we fulfilled in our life all that was asked of us by God? All those words of encouragement and prophecy were fulfilled in our lifetime, that we have left nothing undone like Joshua, and our lives were filled with a thousand suddenlies that shook the world. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss Caleb and the Anakites. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.